Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. And speaking of Dolly Alderton, congratulations on the publication of Ghost Star. I'm so proud of you. Oh, I love you. Thank you. I'd like to congratulate myself, actually, but not about ghosts. About making a discovery this week that is old news to some, but for me is new and it's a wonder and I'm sure it will be new to some of our listeners. So you'd like to congratulate yourself for finding an old news story? Yeah. I think the bar is high for this week's episode. <laughs> Press on. Now, did you know that in 2018, Matt Hancock, when he was Culture Secretary, launched his own app? <laughs> no. Was it called... Hmm, what could Matt Hancock's app be called? i tell you what it's called. It's called Matt Hancock. Oh, right. And I know that because I downloaded it last week. It's a blue square on my phone in Calibri font. It just says Matt Hancock. So the app features picture galleries and videos uh, with updates on his activities. It allows users to sign up as friends and chat with other fans of the Matt Hancock app. First time users are greeted with a cheery video of Mr. Hancock saying, hi, I'm Matt Hancock and welcome to my app. So he's he's just using an app. I, I think he's just misunderstood the premise of social media because that's how people use <laughs> Instagram or a website. <laughs> Precisely. The regularity is a little bit patchy. Two months ago was the last update. Today I'm announcing that we are forming the National Institution for Health Protection. 11 comments. The comments are pretty paltry. Joanne says, loved your speech this morning, Matt. You doing brilliantly. Trying to get back to normal again. Hope you had a good time in Corwell. And then someone else has said, you're a bell end, Matt Hancock. And then before that, there was an update four months ago. <laughs> Picture of a horse. Absolutely thrilling third straight Gold Cup win at Royal Ascot for new market trainer John Gosden's Stradivarius, ridden by Frankie Dettori. It was a magnificent performance. Many congratulations to all involved. Eight comments. Shame you won't be winning a gold cup for your track and trace system. <laughs> this is so strange. So when you say it's an old news story, when was it uncovered? 2018. But my friend just mentioned it last week and I just couldn't get enough of it. The Matt Hancock app. So it started in 2018, but it's still going on now. Yeah. Every few months he checks in and eight of his fans reply keenly. That's very, very strange. My favourite discovery this week is a pandemic meme. It's my favourite of the pandemic memes. It is a reworking 
of the Lonely Planet titles for 2020. Have you seen this? So good. I think it's my favourite lockdown meme as well. So we've put it on the High Lows Twitter this morning, but you've got The Lounge, 57 Routes to the Sofa, The Kitchen, Extreme Experimental Zone, The Stairwell and Other Climbing Activities, The Bathroom, Sitting and Washing Techniques, Locating the Front Door. It doesn't work me reading it out, does it? So I'm just going to (laughs) say... It's really annoying. It works so well as a picture, but me reading out is doing nothing. So I would just say... It's a very funny picture, and that was a very valiant attempt at transferring a visual joke into an audio one. Some would say that it's a valiant, a regular valiant attempt on the high-low. But anyway, I really enjoyed this meme. And I've got another meme that uh, will work better read out because its, its strength is in the caption. And that is a little nugget about Iceland. In Iceland, books are exchanged as Christmas Eve presents. Then you spend the rest of the night in bed, reading them and eating chocolate. I love that. I thought you would. That's too cosy for words. It's very higgy. Huggy. So higgy. Huggy. The tradition is part of a season called Jaulabokaflod, or the Christmas book flood. Quite literal there. So Iceland publishes more books per capita than any other country. You need to start reading some Obsessed Icelandic with Iceland. literature. I've never been. I'd love to go. I've never been. Still obsessed with it. I know I play pretty false and loose with that word, but everything I've read about Iceland feels very magical to me. I can't really take that seriously since the reason that Emily in Paris was made was because a couple of Americans were obsessed with Paris. So I fear for Iceland if that's how you're going to... <laughs> Approach your love for it. My next novel, a 33-year-old single woman finds herself in the fjords of Iceland. In an ice hotel. (laughs) Uh, Panda, I have some news from abroad. News of a holiday romance. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. You are going to wet your ninnies over this. I'm sending you some pictures now over email. So, Melanie Sykes went on a holiday to Venice last week. And in the most extraordinary set of probably allegedly set up pictures, she had a six day romance with a 23 year old gondolier. And (laughs) literally day by day from the moment she got onto his gondola to the moment they said goodbye, it was all captured on camera. And as much as I loathe quoting the mail online, I'm afraid they covered the story absolutely perfectly. Some may say suspiciously perfectly. And I'm going to have to read you the love story. Miss Sykes and the handsome Ricardo Simeonato, who still lives with his parents, enjoyed a six-day fling in the floating city. And they go on to say that uh, Melanie Sykes is 50 years old. It should be said, however, that twice-divorced Miss Sykes, who has two sons aged 18 and 16, looks much younger than her age. As the gallant gondolier who declined to discuss their dalliance himself noted, beauty is relative because they obviously interviewed this gondolier afterwards. Manchester-born Miss Sykes was in Venice on a mini-break with a female friend and first posted a picture of herself being punted along a canal by obliging Ricardo last Saturday. The pictured embrace came less than 48 hours later on Monday, and the next day she was seen enjoying an alfresco breakfast in the gondolier's company. The following morning, Ricardo abandoned his gondola and joined Miss Sykes for a sightseeing boat trip along the Grand Canal. He remained with Miss Sykes until Thursday, the last day of her holiday, when they were pictured arm-in-arm under an umbrella. Ricardo wheeled Miss Sykes' suitcase onto a water taxi that took them both to the city's Marco Polo airport, 
where he waved her off as she made her way to passport control. <laughs> Was this all tracked by the paparazzi rather than her herself? Well, this is, well, come on. I think we know the answer to that. I think a bit of both, probably. I hope it didn't creep her out too much. I hope that she is able to look back at her jolly fondly now that everybody knows No, you're so sweet. You're so pure-hearted, Panda. I don't think you get what I'm trying to sort of... You're saying that legally she knew it was around. <laughs> I'm saying she probably paid some photographers to follow her tryst with Ricardo. Well, it's a lovely little journey. Maybe I'm being a bit too a bit too sceptical. This doesn't come with a note of judgment at all. It's nice to get, uh, you know, the arc of a romance documented for posterity. Maybe I am being sceptical. What do you think, Panda? Well, I'm not just biased because she is my sister. Um, she's not, we're in no way related. But I think that the- God, um, that would do wonders for your reputation, Panda. She is gorgeous. I wish I had those genes. No, I think that the amount- of people who, the amount of celebrities that actually pay paparazzi to take their picture is so much smaller than the amount of celebrities accused. Because if you ever read you're right, you're right. under the line on the Daily Mail, they literally now presume that every single celebrity has hired a paparazzi to follow them because they're so self-obsessed. And most of the time it's absolute bollocks I think it's not that it's not it's, it's just the pictures are so like the stills of a film like the fact that it's so like Kimberly every... Garner on the beach in Thailand with a yeah it's wedgie. so like every single moment but I don't know I should have more faith maybe you're right as you said if, if they weren't if she didn't want to be followed around I hope it didn't ruin their romance it still looked like they had a lovely time six days perfect length yeah Perfect length for a fling. <laughs> I want to tell you about a new wellness, quote unquote, trend that I think you're going to dig particularly at this time. Cow hugging. Cow hugging. Now, how would you do that logistically? So before we go on to the logistics, do you think that is wellness? That's how it's been covered. Or is that emotional health? Or are they now one and the same thing? Uh... Probably the same. Emotional health. I haven't seen... Did you just coin that? And I don't think I invented it, but... Just imagining the next time I'll see that in an aisle and boots, emotional health. It would be better than wellness. Wellness is too much of it. Wellness basically now means, like, living. Mm. Mm. I suppose wellness, you, you think, is more tied up with you know, physical, Quality of physical life. benefits rather than the emotional benefit of a heifer on your back. I I would I would rather that we started using like physical health, mental health, emotional health. But anyway, yeah. it's it's no secret that I'm a bit skeptical about the wellness industry. So any who or rather any coup, this is a new wellness trend sweeping the Netherlands, apparently. It's also happening in the US as well. It's actually been going on for a decade and it involves you touring a farm and this is according to the BBC, resting on a cow for up to three hours. Uh, the cow's huge size, slow heartbeat and warm body help reduce stress and increase positivity. And giving the animal a back rub, reclining against them or even getting licked 
is all part of the appeal. So presumably you could just find a very large human. Yeah, large human or a St. Bernard, I was thinking. With a slow heartbeat. And mm. the word for cow hugging is co-knufflin, which translates to hugging cow. Everything's so literal. So it promotes positivity. It reduces stress by boosting oxy tocin in humans, the hormone released in social bonding. The calming effects of curling up with a pet or emotional support mammal, it seems, are accentuated when cuddling with larger mammals. And then there are farms. So then I went on to Yahoo Life and discovered that there are some farms in the US where you can do it. Mountain Horse Farm in Naples offers a cow and horse experience where you can cuddle cows for $75 an hour. Yeesh. Prairie Conlon, professional counsellor and clinical director of Certipet, tells Yahoo Life, as odd as it may sound, if it helps, go for it. It's a healthy way to increase activity and get those endorphins flowing. I have seen lives change using equine-assisted psychotherapy. As the cow is also a prey animal and has similar behaviours, I can see how it would be beneficial for therapy, not to mention cuddling with animals in general releases those feel-good transmitters. Listen, I know where we can find some cows. But I don't know if you should just do it rogue or if it needs to be overseen. Yeah, I think there'd probably need to be a coordinator. I also have a question about this word sweeping. Sweeping, you know, and it's like that, it's the sort of verb you only read about in a press release. Sweeping the nation. How many people does that mean? Is it sweeping the nation or is it three people? Um, it's probably not sweeping. That's probably um, a hyperbolic word. Hyperbole. If you like hugging cows, do get in touch. Do get in touch. I imagine we'll have lots of lovely farmers sending in pictures of their cows now. It's been a while since we got pictures of Pandora and Dolly, our cows in New Zealand. I know. We have some oh, updates. I hope they're still here. It was a dairy farm, wasn't it? It wasn't a beef farm. It was a dairy farm. It was a dairy farm. Whatever helps they're you sleep at night. frolicking. Yeah, yeah, they're frolicking. They're frolicking. They're fine. I have a lovely story for you as well that might make you weep. Ten-year-old Max Woosie has raised more than £75,000 for charity by sleeping outside for more than 200 nights in a row in memory of his family friend. Max started camping in his garden in February after his 74-year-old neighbour, Rick Abbott, gave him a tent shortly before he passed away from cancer. He asked him to promise to have an adventure with it. Max, who lives in Devon, has vowed to sleep there every night until the pandemic ends and the money is going to the hospice that looked after Richard. Oh, I feel like I want to cry. Yeah, I thought you would. Oh, that's so lovely. Oh, let's link to that, Panda. Let's find the, the fundraiser link and link to that on Twitter. And the show what notes. Boy. We'll put that there too. Yeah, what a lovely boy. I love stories like this. I spend a lot of time sifting through stories from the week, wondering what we should or shouldn't include on the high-low. I don't know if you do this, doll. I sort of shuffle them in and out like Jenga and I'm like, oh, that's funny. Oh, no, that seems trite. Oh, that's important. Oh, God, but it's a bit depressing. And there are a lot bigger stories than this. But at the moment, I feel like these are the ones we should be bringing to you. Mm, Yeah, I agree. I want us where we can to be like mini versions of Tank's Good News because I find that website such, it like does such a good deed, good news, the power yeah. of good news. I remember when I interviewed um, 
Rutger Bregman, this uh, Dutch historian, it must have been about five months ago, and he wrote about kind of the effect that bad news and good news can have on your health, but also how how much we're geared towards bad news and mm. how we cling on to it. So given that there's so much bad news that you're probably already engaging with every day, um, I would like to maybe give you some of the good. I also don't know what good us giving tier updates is. It's been such, you know, it's such an upsetting week and I'm sure I'm not the only person who's just so muddled right now and bringing yeah. the latest corona controversy, Dan Wooten. Well, I've actually got a very moving story that's going to warm your heart that I've been waiting to share with you all week. An antisocial Spanish woman reportedly pretended to be blind for 28 years so that she wouldn't have to stop and say hello to people in the street. <laughs> that is absolutely hilarious. And also, I imagine, quite insulting to people who are blind. <laughs> Carmen Jimenez, 57, told everyone, including her own family, that she'd lost her vision in an accident. Her husband and family were shocked when she came clean, yet not entirely surprised. They'd felt there was something fishy about her story. Her husband said she could put on her makeup perfectly and that they sometimes caught her looking at the TV from the corner of her eye. <laughs> I've oh never God. been a very social person, she said. By pretending to be blind, I was able to avoid many social responsibilities. So there you go. That's a nice heart. Well, it really makes you believe in the good in people, that one, I thought. I was able to avoid a lot of social responsibilities. I wonder what the converse... I would have loved, loved to have been a fly on the wall when her husband and her had that crunch conversation that had maybe been brewing for 28 years. Like, my husband and I can't brew a conversation longer than, like, a week. Wow. I'm quite inspired. Not inspired. Sorry, I'm not inspired by that. But it's made me wonder... It's made me remember there's a whole world of people out there. It's quite something. It's quite something. Yeah, it's quite something. I thought you would uh, like this little snippet, Dolly. I was catching up on a few celebrity interviews over the weekend that had come out in the last month. And this with Mariah Carey in The Guardian a few weeks ago tickled me greatly because we now live in a time where everyone is kind of out humbling each other or out self-deprecating. And yeah. Mariah Carey, when she is asked if she minds being a diva at the age of 50, to be fair, and very, very successful, she responds, no, who the fuck cares? She laughs. Honestly, oh my God, they're calling me a diva. I think I'm going to cry. You think in the grand scheme of things in my life that really matters to me, being called a diva? I am, bitches. That's right. Oh, I love that. I think there's going to be a real <laughs> collective appetite for that kind of ownership of self. I think it's why people really like the Duchess. I think I think people really are missing that kind of energy. Well, you love it in Gemma Collins, don't you? I haven't heard you talk about the GC for a while. You've lost, you've taken your finger off the pulse. I know this podcast was becoming the Gemma Collins podcast for a while. Um, but I'll have a little browse on her Instagram. My old gal, see how she's doing. Yeah, let me know how she is. Thank you for all of your responses about whether or not there is such a thing as a selfless good deed. I found them very interesting and helpful. Here are a few. One listener felt that there is such a thing as a selfless act because she really did not want to give her cat away. I had to move in with my grand temporarily, along with my cat. I love my cat, Kiwi, 
She was essentially my child in animal form. But when I found somewhere new to live, my gran had developed a strong attachment to Kiwi. Kiwi had also fallen in love with this huge new space she now called home and having big windows to watch birds and people. I had to come to the decision to either take Kiwi with me to a smaller flat back in London and leave my gran with an empty home again. I ended up leaving Kiwi behind, despite my strong desire not to. I'd already been made to leave two cats with my ex a couple of years ago, so this was really hard for me. So I don't agree with Phoebe Buffet that no act is unselfish, as leaving Kiwi didn't make me feel good, even though it was in both of their best interests. Round of applause to Kiwi and her owner. I think that does sound selfless. It's horrible to be apart from from a pet. I hate people who are sneery, sneery about pets and the bond that you have between a pet. It's really powerful. Although, would she not feel a little bit good for knowing how happy Kiwi and her grandmother are? Therefore, suggesting a little nubbin in there that means it could not be an entirely 100% selfless good deed. I don't get that vibe from this letter. I get fuck you, Gran. <laughs> fuck you, Gran. Enjoy Kiwi. Really glad that we didn't read out her name. We also got this letter from a listener who does not believe altruism exists, but that that isn't a bad thing. I think perhaps the question to ask yourself, or I have been asking myself when doing something with good intention is, is the source of myself helping another primarily to assist and help the other or secondary to myself feeling fulfilled for doing what myself and others would see me as doing a good deed? I think it's also healthier for altruism not to exist because I feel it is also important to have the ability and encouragement to have strong boundaries to say no or limit help to what you can do because in order for you to be able to help and support others, you first must have helped and supported yourself. She adds an addendum, which I think is also useful. I understand it's easy to say this in theory is to be able to achieve this can very much be based on privilege, experience, the type of work that you do and the role you have in your personal life too. Very interesting. I think that's quite a helpful way to clarify the naughtiness, just to look at what is the primary motivation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't really love the idea of being like, oh, I don't get to count that as a good deed because it made me feel a bit happy helping someone. I think that's really important with any sort of progression or social justice is looking at, you know, there's a difference with, between something making me feel good as a byproduct and doing something, doing a good deed as some sort of, stage in the narrative of my personal evolution and character improvement. There's a difference between feeling good because you've connected with someone or something, or you've connected to the world or greater communities in some way, and the self-aggrandizement of that. I think they're two very different things. Yes, totally. So rather than here is proof of my personal growth. Yeah, sponsored exactly. by this charity. Yeah, I think it's really important as well to, you know, a culture of, you know, to use the, the popular parlance to show the receipts of what you're doing for change. I do think that's important, that's important particularly people with big... Um, followings or people in the public eye and I actually think even within your own communities where people need a bit of a push towards realizing what action needs to be taken I think creating a culture of publicness and normalizing these sorts of actions this sort of thinking this sort of change these sorts of quote-unquote good deeds I think that's really good what I think is really really important is 
the work that you're doing when no one is there to bear witness, the work that you're doing with your own thoughts, the work that you're doing when you're communicating with people and no one else is there, the books that you're reading, the things, the culture that you're taking in without sharing it online. I think that's really, really important as well. It's also interesting as well because I think it's as it's a privilege and a luxury to be faffing around and worrying about the personal ethics of sharing a charitable donation because actually often you find when you work with a charity, they will say to you, can you please make it known that you're an ambassador for us or that you're giving a certain portion of the of proceeds to, to us or um, can you tweet about us or can you, you know, that would be really helpful for us. And actually then I think that has to usurp any sense of like my own personal moral maze that I'm going through about that because like who fucking cares? It's just about like making sure maximum amount of money goes to these causes. Thank you also for all of your emails about Emily in Paris. There were a lot. (laughs) The critique rolls on. I'm starting to feel very sorry for Emily in Paris. I saw a review on the BBC today where the headline simply read, the show is addictive levels of awfulness. Did you watch an episode? No, I I know I promised you I would. I'll do it this week, I promise. What did I promise you I'd do in return? (laughs) I can't remember. I think I said I would check something out if you check that out. Anyway, clearly we've both broken our promises. Support for the Hilo comes from Stripe and Stare. Comfortable, sustainable knickers and loungewear for which, and not just because the sponsor ordered, Dolly and I have been long-term fans of. In fact, like most days, today I am wearing a pair. Not only are they the most comfortable knickers in the world, they are 95% biodegradable. Using sustainably sourced beechwood fibres, Stripe and Stairs production uses 95% less water than cotton and is proven to be up to three times softer. As well as this truly innovative approach, Stripe and Stair have also launched a subscription service for the Undie Obsessive. Sign up and get monthly knickers delivered through your letterbox so that you too can be like Justin Bieber. I think he uh, gets new underwear very regularly. That is the celebrity rumour. Stripe and Stair also make loungewear and nightwear, all in the same super soft, sustainable fibres, perfect for working from home. I have a tie-dyed tracksuit, which can also masquerade as a pyjama because it's quite thin, which means technically I need, nor do, ever take it off. Get yourself a 20% discount by entering HIGH20HIGH20 online at stripeandstair.com or shop the collection at international retailers such as Shopbop, Selfridges, Bloomingdale's and Revolve. Thank you very much to Stripe and Stair. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. What have you got to recommend us this week, Pandora Rama? Hello, in fact. 
to Banana Rama, who. Oh, yes! Rumour has it. Listen to the Hilo. My absolute favourite Hilo listener fact, Hilo listener rumour I've ever heard. Hello, Banana Rama. We're so glad you're listening. Let's have a Banana Rama song as well to play us out. I read Emma Klein's new book of short stories, Daddy. I feel like that has to be said in a creepy voice, doesn't it? Daddy. I mean, they're about creepy men, so it fits. Did you ever read The Girls? No, heard wonderful things. So that was her debut book in 2016. It was a phenomenal success. Um, I think it was the biggest debut in the UK of 2016 and obviously huge in the States as well. And it's based on the Manson family, a cult in California in the 1960s and the murder of Sharon Tate. So it was a novel about a 14-year-old girl called Evie who who joins this cult that is based on the Manson cult. There was also this mad case in 2018 where her ex-boyfriend, after it became this massive success, claimed that she had stolen the girls from him. And the case was dismissed from court. But one of his lawyers was David Boys, who also worked for Weinstein. And together they filed an 110-page complaint about her, which included 13 pages of private conversations between Klein and her former partners, plus intimate photos of her, which had been taken from an old computer of hers that now belonged to the ex-boyfriend, with the lawyers claiming that these pictures and messages contradicted Klein's account of how she had been treated by him during their relationship. And I bring that up not because it's salacious gossip, but because she revealed in an interview earlier this year, that there was not one part of the publication of the girls or the junket that she did around it when this lawsuit wasn't happening. So can you imagine the stress oh, of that? Poor. Do you know what? It happens a lot. It happens a lot. Well, not that specific. That's hugely traumatic. But yeah, it happens a lot with authors that they a book gets published or a book becomes public and not only do they have to do a campaign they have to deal with like some huge behind the scenes legal thing of someone saying that their books was copied or someone saying that there's something litigious it's it's like and I really feel for the authors who aren't who don't have publishers with you know really rock solid legal departments because that really is going to be the luck of your publisher at that point and I think it could make you feel very very attacked and very stressed out so it's insane that she had to deal with that while promoting that book and these intimate pictures of her it would be quite fitting if ghosts had a ghostwriter though wouldn't it (laughs) (laughs) lends itself to the name anyway so all of that brings an especially interesting context to her book of short stories which are all about the interior life of men who exploit women basically and I expect you will be accused of misandry by some who wish to misunderstand her intention. And to be fair, they are uneasy to read. It's a whole bunch of not necessarily very nice men or slightly pathetic men. And you don't close the book feeling good about the world, but they are so deaf these 10 stories with their undercurrent of unease she puts into words um a moment I think kind of in that way that cat person did but the book of short stories didn't necessarily expand on that feeling in the way that I haven't read them but the general consensus seemed to be that cat person remained the best short story she had written whereas I think something that's really clever about daddy is these stories are all really different and she does this thing that I love and hate 
where she refuses to tell you what exactly has happened. She's a very elusive writer, so things are merely hinted at. What's your relationship with that kind of eliding of things? Um, I used to find it very frustrating when I was younger. I think I find that sort of plot mystery quite frustrating, but I think I find emotional and character mystery and ambiguity very satisfying in a strange way. And I find ambiguous endings very satisfying because increasingly what I look for in fiction as I get older is um, a reflection of real life. And increasingly I find real life to be endlessly disappointing. Interesting. Is the rather gloomy conclusion that I have on that sort of ambiguity and mystery in work because there's ambiguity and mystery and lack of resolution in real life. I think it's very intentional on her part and I think it's very successful. I think she does it extremely well. And I also think it's a key part of her writing. I'd have to go back and read The Girls again to see if there was that ambiguity um, in her novel. But I found my belly tightening as each story came to an end because I'd already have flipped to see at what page the chapter ended. And I'd be groaning as I knew I was coming to the end because I knew she wasn't going to give me a resolution. And that's like a personality trait on me. Like I find coyness frustrating because I'm incredibly nosy. um, And I get quite muddled in the gray areas, even though I think the gray area is really important. I I literally Mm -hmm. don't read thrillers because I have to read the last page to see what's happened, which then makes the rest of the book just unappetizing filler because I know what's coming. I have exactly the same thing. And this really proves me to be the unintellectual moron that I am. It's why I find philosophy so frustrating. I'm like, look. I love philosophy. Proust, Camus, give me a fucking answer. Yes or no? Afterlife or none? Meaning in life or no? (laughs) Yes, Give me pith. Yes, you're right. Give me pith. I need to know. I find it so, and I really don't like it about myself. I think when it comes to the truths of life, uh, I don't want ambiguity. I want pith. I want plain fact. And obviously that's completely impossible. I blame that on us growing up with cliff notes because they were a really big part of everyone's GCSEs, weren't they? Mm. BBC bite size. That's what I want. <laughs> that's what I want Nietzsche to do for me with maybe some nice little pictures. Anyway, back to daddy. So this kind of undercurrent of unease manifests through these male characters and these, and there's a real like breadth to the story. So in what can you do with the general? It's implied that a father has been violent, but never spelt out. In Northeast regional, a man goes to pick up his son from boarding school after he's done something appalling, but you never find out what. And in The Nanny, it's about the aftershock of a woman who's had an affair with a Hollywood actor seeking respite from the paparazzi at a family friend's house. These aren't spoilers. This is on the flyleaf of the book and is like in the you know description of the book if you go onto stores to um, buy it. And and also you kind of can't really give spoilers about Daddy because as I said, it's not about like the crunch point. It's about the ramifications. And that's where the uneasiness uh, really excels, I think, is it's it's the... It's the ambiguity of life. So they're not feel good, but they definitely to use <laughs> to use whatever's always written about when when someone's had a successful first book, cement her status as a um as a as, as a really uh brilliant fictional voice. And actually, if, if if you want to do like a tester before you buy Daddy, a lot of these stories were written for publications first. They were written for the New Yorker or Paris Review. Or Granta. So if you put in Emma Klein's short stories, you can read some of them online and then decide whether or not you want 
to read the book and she's also read out quite a few as well so if you have a google if you have a search on itunes what about you dolly what have you been enjoying oh i cannot stop talking about luster have you heard people talk about luster panda i've heard about it tell me about it you're gonna love it so it's a debut novel from raven lalani it's fucking phenomenal it's the story of a young black woman called Edie who is struggling to make city life work in New York and makes questionable choices in all areas of her life. She begins an online affair with a much older white man called Eric, who's in a sort of murkily open marriage. The plot follows how Edie becomes unwittingly entangled in his marriage, a marriage in which they have adopted a young black daughter. I'm not going to say anything more, but... You have to trust me, listeners, when I say these pages are some of the most exciting, disturbing, dark, sharp, funny pages I've read in a debut novel. I have so many of them turned down. And instead of giving any of the plot away, I'm just going to read you some of my favourite pages. So this is about the bleak monotony of life as a temp in your early 20s. My routine is always the same. I dart from the train and immediately wash my hands in the office bathroom. I load up on the freehand lotion the publisher started putting out after it was revealed that the women in the company, a whopping 87% of the employee base, are still making less than the men. The hand lotion has slightly increased morale, even though the quality is on par with that diabolical drugstore cocoa butter that leaves you ashier than before. I post a joke about the L train on Twitter and I delete it when I don't get any likes. I listen to a newly pregnant publicity assistant, Wretch, lately always between 9.03 and 9.15 in one of the stalls, and I firm up my ponytail. I kill a roach in the kitchen, grab a cup of tepid coffee, and sit at my desk where, before I start work, I browse through some photos of friends who are doing better than me, then an article on a black teenager who was killed on 115th for holding a weapon later identified as a showerhead, then an article on a black woman who was killed on the Grand Concourse for holding a weapon later identified as a cell phone. Then I drown myself in the comments section and do some online shopping, by which I mean put four dresses in my cart, a strictly theoretical exercise, and then let the page expire. I am buying that right now. It's so, so, so good. Let me read this bit as well. I think this might be one of my favourite descriptions of sex I've ever read. Oh, fruity. Yeah, and sex is fucking hard to write. It's so difficult to write about sex in a way that is titillating, profound, not cliched, not embarrassing. And this is just wonderful. Slowly, he eases me down onto his grand, slightly left-leaning cock. And for a moment, I do rethink my atheism. For a moment, I consider the possibility of God as a chaotic, amorphous evil who made autoimmune disease, but gave us miraculous genitals to cope. (laughs) Well, there's a first for everything. And I think that was the first time you've read a sex scene on the high-low. Yeah, I'm hoping one of many more. Absolutely loved it. Highly recommend Luster by Raven Lalani. It's out in hardback on the 21st of January. But I think by the looks of Amazon, it's available now on Kindle audiobook as well. Looks like in the UK, it will be 21st of January. Please get those pre-orders in. You will be so happy to have this book land on your hallway floor on the 21st of January. Is Sorry if this is a stupid question. Um... Is luster a word or did Raven make it up? I think she made it up because there's luster uh, spelt with an R-E, which must be a French derivative, which is when something has 
a shine to it. Yes, yes. But this like is hair luster. is lustrous. Yeah, this is luster er, which I don't think is an Americanization of that word. So I think she might even have made up a word for the title, which I love. Maybe it's someone who lusts. You are a luster. Mm. To lust, would that fit with the? Would that fit with the content? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, I'm definitely going to buy that. Loved what you just read. And not surprised at all that you love it because it had shades of quite a few novelists whose tone you really love. Yeah, it's brilliant. I can't wait to see what she writes next. What else have you been enjoying, Panda? I wanted to hat tip to Love Life, which I told you to watch and you won't have watched, but you'll thank me when you do because... I will watch it. Because it's, lots of people have recommended it to me. Have they? Interesting, because yeah. I felt like it slightly landed on BBC iPlayer with a little bit of a... It was very soft, it's landing. Um, I hadn't read anything about it. It stars and is executive produced by Anna Kendrick, who most of you will probably best know from Pitch Perfect. Have a little look of the trailer. I'm, I'm Augie, by the way. Darby. Furby? Darby. Darby. Yeah, Sorry, I know. Darby. No, I've gotten Furby before. It's been a little bit wild. Have you found the one? No, uh, I found some losers on Match.com. I just feel like I'm failing all the time, you know? Like, is it always this hard? You go for it and you get on that dick wagon. Mm. It is your destiny. Very upset by the phrase dick wagon. That looks lush. My husband and I absolutely love this. I found it incredibly moving and cleverly done. And so did my sisters. As I said, it I found it kind of landed quite quietly. And the few critical reviews I've read are pretty lukewarm. But have you had lots of people saying they loved it to you? Yeah, you were the third friend who told me to watch it. Okay, that's great. Because I, whenever I love something, I always want lots of other people to love it too mm. I feel like it deserves the love that just looks lovely that trailer that I watched it looks really warm and really lovely it has the spirit of This Is Us is that what that was called that had like mm. tons of people watched it Mandy Moore so it's yeah. got the spirit of that but I think it's better and I know that This Is Us is like got a very cult following so people might get quite cross at me but give it a go I think it's better um, whilst also having all the feels that you get from This Is Us. It's very human. Um, it's very sweet. Um, it's also pretty sad It at times. It really normalises breakups, which I loved. I think a lot of us have this fear that, you know, um, a big breakup is kind of the end of love or the end of something. And the way that this show is divided into chapters gives this kind of glorious sense of momentum that there's actually so much that can be learnt from things ending and that obviously with an end there's a beginning and I know that sounds really trite but it really celebrates the beginnings and I love that in this really kind of subtle way and the the character Darby played by Anna Kendrick um believes you know she's very naive in the way that um that I was, uh, that her life will become whole when she falls in love and that great love should be 
forever. Um, but as you learn that each episode is dedicated to a different love and not just romantic, there's an episode dedicated to her best friend, which is arguably the best, and one to her mother, which is also immensely moving. Darby realizes that love isn't a static thing. And I think a lot of people would find it really helpful to watch. It reminded me of how bound up together love and fear are. And it's a very evolving show, which I think it has to be when each episode sort of skates on six months or a year, which means there's a slightly dodgy clip on Fringe in the earlier episodes. But I found that really comforting, particularly at a time when time is sort of, you know, very elastic or to use Emma Klein's phrase, very sticky. How many episodes is it? It's 10 episodes and they're about half an hour each. So a very good weekend binge. Weekend binge, I was going to say, nice one to settle down into autumn with. Settle down into autumn. I don't think you'll be able to resist doing all of it though. Oh, really? I just wanted to gobble it. Well, speaking of gobbling, love when the links work like that. Uh, I have two food recommendations for you, Pandora. The first is Nigella for The Guardian with recipes from her new book and a piece on the notion of guilty pleasures. Did you see this? Is that what her new book's called? Is it called Guilty Pleasures? No, her new book is called Cook, Eat, Repeat. Fair enough. But the piece that she wrote to promote it is, um, is about guilty pleasures. It's so beautiful, I'd like to quote it. I'm very aware that the joy I celebrate in food is a privilege. I know I might seem soupy when I say that I see every mealtime, every mouthful as a celebration of life, but with lamentable exceptions, I do or I try to. It's such a waste otherwise. The sad refrain from women ever since I can remember has been, I shouldn't be eating this but. And when I had a daughter, I vowed these words would never come from my lips. But even the words we don't say out loud can run riot in our heads. It perhaps sounds improbable to be able to train yourself out of the cycle of reproachful self-indulgence and self-recrimination, but I'm living proof it can be done. I was brought up by a mother, the cook I have learned most from, whose exuberant output in the kitchen was set in painfully sharp relief and indeed fostered by an ever-expanding pattern of self-denial and self-punishment, not an uncommon syndrome. Diagnosed with terminal cancer two weeks before her death, she started eating for the first time, she said giddily, without worry or guilt. How unbearably sad to allow yourself unmitigated pleasure in food only when you receive a terminal diagnosis. I have little time for purists who disdain the lowly tastes of others, nor do I wish to ally myself with the defensive mockery of inverted snobs who love any sort of food they themselves find fancy as simply pretentious frauds. Eating is such an elemental pleasure. What a strangely puny act to want to police it. It's a very beautiful piece of writing, I thought, and I can't wait for her next cookbook. Wow, that's real... Yeah, I'm going to say it, food for thought. Um, I think a lot about um, raising a daughter, how to how to feed her healthily, but also how to eat healthily around her, how to think of the words we use. It's even stuff like, um, you know, when you were little and someone would prod your tummy, you know, when you're like two and you have a sticky out tummy and someone will go, look at that fat little tummy. It's stuff like that. And it's also how to think of a cultivate, you know, a relationship with sugar. For example, as most people I know, you don't want to give your toddler too much sugar because they bounce off the walls. It's obviously not great for them. But then I want her when we're enjoying a piece of cake to enjoy a piece of cake. So it's, it's kind of how to foster that relationship with something that, you know, she can indulge and be 
proud of enjoying and love every moment of that, but also know that it's not something that we do all the time. And it's not that we don't do it all the time because it's somehow shameful. It's that we don't eat it all the time because it wouldn't make her feel great. And by the way, I say that as like the least snobby person ever. I really hate food snobbery. I am a real sugar addict and it's something I actually really try and curb. And it gets harder now I have children because it makes me realize how much I was eating sugary snacks that wouldn't make me feel great because anything I eat in front of her, she wants to eat. So I love her talking about how she decided she wanted to talk about food when she had a child because it's something I think about a lot and that I'm actually really trying to learn about. So I love that piece. I wish she'd write, because I'm not a massive cook, so I don't buy massive cookbooks, but I wish she'd just write a book about eating and feeding because I'd love that. I'd love a non-fiction book. Her, her, like first, books, her. her first book's quite a lot like that, How to Eat. Okay, uh, okay lots of big then. chapters of thoughts on food and cooking as well as recipes. Um, it's a great book. Well, that sounds just lovely. And as I said, it's really made me think. So thank you. I also loved Faith, Fasts and Feasts, The Role of Food in Jewish Celebration on Radio 4's The Food Programme, in which Leila Kazim looks at how food is symbolic in the rituals of Jewish faith and celebration, how families and Communities have had to find new ways of coming together and celebrating with food during a dense time of Jewish holidays um, and also a time of social distancing. It's about how traditional Jewish food is changing. It features interviews with lots of Jewish people and Jewish families, including Jesse and Lenny Ware from the Table Manners podcast. The clip I want to play is the opening of this brilliant episode packed with stories and characters and history in which a woman describes how a family recipe was passed down from grandmother to grandchildren in a quite convoluted and very covert way. My grandmother used to make for Rosh Hashanah special biscuits called finger kichels. We were all desperate for that recipe, but she would never give anyone that recipe because I think she felt she was the matriarch of the family. And for as long as she was alive, she wanted to be the person who made those finger kichels. And so eventually my cousin Philip convinced her to allow him to film her making finger kichels on the proviso that none of us see that footage while she's alive. And of course that he signs a full legally binding non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> And uh, eventually she passed away and we do all have our DVDs. And it starts with my grandmother, hands on the table, the ingredients all around. She looks into the camera and she says, if you're watching this, I must be dead. And that's, that's a lovely story. Are you going to do that, Dolly? I don't know. I do understand the inclination of wanting to be Queen Bee in the kitchen. <laughs> so... I, she has my, uh, I don't know if I'd take it that far, but she definitely has my uh, understanding. My last recommendation is a breathtaking personal essay about family, politics, racism and the pandemic and how they all coalesced into an unbearable situation, but a very intriguing story. How My Mother and I Became Chinese Propaganda by Ji Young Fan, a writer for The New Yorker who's writing about Chinese politics in the last decade, has acquired her somewhat of a reputation among Chinese nationalists as a traitor to her country. Ji Young Fan lives in New York with her mother. They emigrated when she was a child. And her mother has ALS, which is known as motor neuron disease in the UK, and is in hospital. At the same time as the pandemic hits, 
the hospital facility shuts, meaning that Ji Young is unable to visit her mother, who doesn't speak English. And at the same time, the trolls up the ante and she receives an overwhelming amount of grotesque personal messages. The Chinese newspapers cover this story. They call her a traitor. They wish her mother to uh, death to the extent that her aunts and uncles and family start sending her articles. They profess to have got hold of pictures of Ji Young and her mother in hospital together. And then throw in the fact that this is a single young writer attempting to pay exorbitant fees of American's healthcare system and being consistently told either obliquely or overtly to go back to China whilst also dealing with Chinese trolls who are telling her to never come home or they will deal with her. It makes for a really devastating and beautifully written piece of writing about displacement, both politically, but also filially. Who are you when you're told you don't belong in the country of your birth or the country you now live in? Who are you when you can't see your sole parent in the same country as you? I want to insert a reading of her piece where she writes about when lockdown hit New York and her desperation to ensure that her mother's Chinese-speaking nurses could stay with her. One night in early March, when the pandemic still felt like a distant tragedy happening to others, I read that 13 residents at a nursing home in Washington state had been killed by the virus and that 70 of its 180 employees had developed symptoms. I lay in bed waiting for morning, and at seven o'clock called the nurse's station on my mother's floor. My tone was solicitous, as I explained that I was Yali Tsong's daughter and asked if the nurses could make sure to wear masks and wash their hands before tending to her. The woman on the line replied that she couldn't tell the other nurses what to do, and neither can you. As she replaced the receiver, she made a remark to someone nearby that thudded in my ear. She's telling us what to do, but she's the one who's Chinese. Throwing my coat on over my pajamas, I rushed to the hospital, which is a five and a half minute walk from my apartment. At the entrance, there were uniformed guards and a notice that said, effective immediately, all visitation for patients and residents is temporarily suspended. Something about my face caused one security guard to apologize. It's state policy, he said. It can't be helped. I called Ying and Joel. It was a Friday, the day they were supposed to rotate their shifts. It takes Joe two hours to get to Carter from her home in Queens, which she shares with her son's family and in-laws. I wanted to make sure she hadn't already left. Knowing that losing a week's income would worry her, I feebly muttered something about how the pandemic had caught us all off guard. Then I called Ying and begged her to stay with my mother in the hospital for another week. After I assured her, groundlessly, that the facility would likely reopen in a week, she agreed to stay. With the hospital closed to visitors, the only way I could communicate with my mother was through FaceTime. She was often in severe pain, and without me there to badger the hospital staff about minute changes in her insulin dosage, or the timing of her pain medication. She cried more and slept less. This meant less sleep for Ying, too. For years, I have had to mediate between my mother and the aides, between the aides and the hospital nurses, between my mother and the nurses. But a phone screen could not possibly accommodate all the subtleties needed to allay my mother's fears. God, that's absolutely harrowing. I think it makes a lot of us think about 
the stresses in our life right now, reading that, and I ripped through it. I think it's really important as well during this time of mass collective distress that we still are aware of the differentiations, vast differentiations between how we are being treated, the care given to us, how we are being mistreated, dependent on factors such as race, factors such as... It's really important that that's something that we continue to learn about and understand as well as remaining kind of tuned in to a to a more low level homogenized distress there's there are just so many different experiences within that well speaking of other experiences and stories this is a bit of a gear change here <laughs> hadn't quite anticipated <laughs> hadn't quite anticipated the clunk of the gear change in this one uh, to end the episode we have a very exciting exclusive preview from our favourite filthy agony aunts, Joan and Jerrica, whose podcast, Dear Joan and Jerrica, we know is a big favourite amongst Hilo listeners. They've written a book called Dear Joan and Jerrica, Why He Turns Away, Do's and Don'ts from Dating to Death, published on the 29th of October in a hardback and audiobook. I am absolutely loving this disgusting, hilarious piece of filth. <laughs> Prudes, the pure-minded, puritanical, or those with children in the room or car, you might want to skip ahead to our goodbye. Lovely. Felatio, BJ, smoking the pink cigar, playing the skin flute, or the two-headed woodpecker. Call it what you will. This is number one on any guy's list, isn't it? And when first dating, so many ladies trick their fella into thinking she loves nothing more than to gulp his willy down her gullet and guzzle on pints of sperm 24-7. But sadly, the second the confetti's fall and she deems it perfectly acceptable to step that right down to a half-hearted gobble on a special birthday and every Mm. other Christmas. I mean, I know of ladies that honestly never do it again Mm. and wonder why the, the marriage is failing. Well, you would be surprised, Joan, at the number of lazy ladies out there who either won't do this or aren't doing it properly. Mm, You know, mm. what a shame. I mean, for example, some of them aren't even taking the entire penis and testes into their mouths. It's it's awful. I mean, do you think because they don't want to? Well, they say their mouth isn't big enough. Um, You know, other ladies claim that their neck got tired after a few bobs up and down. It's absolute nonsense, Joan. It's actually very selfish. Mm. Um, So look, technically speaking, because we do get asked, how do we do this? How do we do this? Mm. How many willy bobs and socks should a lady be doing? Well, recommended average session, Joan, 12,000. Okay, okay, 12,000. But more if he hasn't ejaculated. Oh, yes, got to always carry on to the bitter end, Joan. Mm. Thank you very much to dear Joan and Jerrica for that. The tonic that we all need today. Maybe not all of us, but most of us. Thank you so much for listening to The Hilo. You can write to us by emailing show at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show. You can buy our merch at thehiloshop.com where all proceeds go to charity, 50% to Freedom to Charity and 50% to Black Minds Matter. We will talk to you next week. Goodbye from us and goodbye from Bananarama. We're so glad you're listening. Bye. Bye.